Shabbat So this morning we're going to be moving right on briskly, uh, pr- proceeding through the four applications of mindfulness, the four close applications of mindfulness. So we look very briefly, of course, at the body, explicitly the body, but also implicitly all of the appearances, all the phenomena that we access by way of the five physical senses. And then moving right on in this progression from coarse to subtle, this, I think, very, very skillful strategy. Coarse to subtle, then we move on to the second of the four close applications of mindfulness, and that is of feelings. And bear in mind that in this context, in Buddhism, this term that we generally do translate as feeling, it's a good translation, vedana, vedana, refers to only our very primitive, primal feelings, pleasure, displeasure, and neutral. Nothing more sophisticated. Frustration, exasperation, exhilaration, anger, and so forth. These are all emotions. But we're just talking real basic primal. And for a very good reason. This is very familiar now, isn't it? These are the ones we care about. These are the ones we care about right down to our core. We don't want the unpleasant ones. We want the pleasant ones. And if we get the neutral ones, we're bored. Pretty much that, yeah? But so I give kind of a long talk on that relative to you know, the roots of bodhicitta. And the fact that there are just four applications of mindfulness, there could have been, the Buddha could have made it five or thirteen, anything he liked. But the fact that the next one is a close application of mindfulness to the mind, which includes the whole array of mental factors, anger, compassion, etc., 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 a wide variety, 51 mental factors, they're all included in that one, except feelings. Because feelings, mental feelings, enjoyment, and so forth, that's also a mental factor. Why didn't it get pitched in with all the others? What made it so special? If you were another mental affection, you might feel jealous. What makes feelings so special? We just got thrown in with all the, you know, all the rest. And, well, there's a very good reason. I mean, it's a good objection, but then there's a good answer, too. And that is, among all these mental afflictions, these are the ones we really care about. All the other ones are kind of, you know, whatever. But if you're in pain, that's the only one you really care about. If you're in mental anguish, that's the one you care about. If you're filled with bliss, that kind of catches your attention. And these are the ones we want. And so, since we want them, and we care about them, we can't help it. And it doesn't matter whether you're a human being or a cockroach, you can't help it. You don't want pain and you do want pleasure. Then if you want something, you probably should understand it. Good principle, isn't it? If you, want, if you want to acquire something, to realize something, to experience something, and you don't have it, or you are having it, but you want to get rid of it, then understand it. This is the, what the Buddha said in his brief references of Four Noble Truths. Here is the reality of suffering. Understand it. Here is the reality of source of suffering. Get rid of it. Here is the reality of the cessation of suffering. Realize it. Here is the reality of the path to the cessation of suffering. Follow it. But the first one was, here's the reality, Four Noble Truths, here's the reality of suffering, understand it. We don't want to understand it. We don't want to understand it. We want it to be gone. It's like having a really awful neighbor. We don't want to understand them, we just want them to move. <laughs> but the problem is they don't. And we want suffering just to vanish, and it doesn't. And so what our natural tendency, it's not just modernity, but modernity knows how to do this with spectacular success. Anesthetize it. We do this better than any civilization in 
history. They just, I mean, what, until what, a century ago or so? I don't really know. Anesthesia didn't exist. Civil War, 150 years ago, right? You have a, a, limb, a, limb, a limb that's getting, uh, getting infected, cut it off. And your only anesthetic would be maybe some whiskey. Right? So there it is. But it's not just anesthesia. It's video games. It's internet. It's work. It's work. And this, oh, it's work. That's the Protestant way. Work yourself to death. Get your mind off it. Get to work. Don't worry about whether you're unhappy, you're anxious, you're miserable, you're finding your life totally devoid of meaning, and you're desperate. Well, there's a, there's a solution to that. Get to work. That's the anesthesia. And then, of course, when you're tired of that, then anesthesia. Then we have the next anesthesia is entertainment. And boy, we entertain each other you know, like never before in history. The range of entertainments. Gosh. Even, you know, those shopping channels. <laughs> That, too, is a form of entertainment, you know, for the people on the verge of suicide and not have, can't quite decide, you know, there it is. So the Buddha's, I mean, this is the first thing the Buddha talked about. The first topic he addressed after he made his walk, his long walk, from Bodhgaya to Sadhanat, he encountered his five previous companions. This is a reality of suffering. I could really go on, but time is short. To understand feelings, that's a big deal. To, to understand feelings, as the Buddha himself said in, the, in his main discourse, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, as we're focusing on feelings, examine them closely, closely apply meaning, uh, mindfulness to them, and then in the midst of this, this is why this is immensely richer than mere bare attention or just you know, be here now, and that is attend to the factors of origination. What are the factors that give rise to the feelings you're experiencing? This is not, a bare, this is not bare attention. You're not going to get it that way. You know, start using your intelligence, for heaven's sakes. And what are the factors of disillusion? No, no feelings are permanent. So how is it that they vanish? And the Buddha said, investigate this. This is contemplative science. And it's just spectacular sharpness. Pali Canon, Theravada, Theravada commentaries are spectacular here. So this is why we closely apply mindfulness to feelings, because we care about them so deeply, existentially, and we always will. Even an arhat cares about feelings. A Buddha, of course, cares about the feelings of all sentient beings. It never stops. It just never stops. It's right there in the very nature of being conscious. There is no conscious entity, no conscious being, that doesn't care about feelings. It's built in. It's intrinsic. So, to be brief now, I don't want to ramble. Some basic Buddha psychology that's totally empirical. And that is, we have these five physical modes, five types of physical, uh, kind of sensory consciousness, five sensory consciousness. Visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, and tactile. Easy, right? And they each have their own separate and non-overlapping, according to Buddhism, non-overlapping domains of experience. And that is when you, in the scene, let there be just a scene, what you see, see you don't hear. What you hear, you don't smell. What you smell, you don't feel. What you feel, you don't taste. These are non-overlapping domains of experience. And that's for the five. You can check to see whether that's true. It's interesting. That's back to the close applications of mindfulness of body, which then includes all of the five sense fields, right? Check to see whether there's any overlap in terms of what you're actually getting directly to these five sensory modes of consciousness. And then we have mental consciousness. And mental consciousness has its own nest, so to speak, which is to say its own domain, which is called datu, 
Datu, because there are 18 Datus, there are six Datus or domains of experience, six modes of consciousness, and six faculties, independence upon which the six modes of consciousness arise. Three times six, 18. So each of the six modes of consciousness has its own domain, right? And mental consciousness, of course, does too. And that is that domain of appearances, of phenomena, that can be apprehended, directly observed only by way of mental perception, mental awareness. Dreams. You can't see them with your eyeballs. You can't hear them. You can't measure them. None of these can be measured with scientific instruments. They're completely in the dark. But your thoughts, your emotions, uh, with that which we attend to introspectively, and we all know this, uh, I won't comment anymore on the ridiculous notion that introspection doesn't happen. This is just by, by the metacognitively impaired. There's no reason to listen to such people. And so we are, of course, you all know this perfectly well, you, can, you know when your mind is agitated, when it's calm, when thoughts are coming up, when they're not, when the pleasure is arising in your mind and when it's not, and so forth. We know this by means of mental consciousness. We're not like in the old joke uh, from behaviorism, where you know, human beings are understood to be only stimulus-response stimulus entities, but with no interiority. So a man and woman make love. Remember this one? A man and woman make love. They finished. And then the man turns over, lights a cigarette, and turns to his companion and said, it was good for you, how was it for me? <laughs> yeah. As if, you know, there's no interiority, so that's all you would know, it's just behavior. Well, of course, that's a good joke, moderately. Uh, it's terrible science, but it's kind of a moderately good joke. But, of course, we are aware of our own joy. We don't have to infer it on the basis of behavior and we don't have to infer it on the basis of neurocorrelates. That's all neither here nor there. It's extraneous. It's outside peripheral. And so here's the interesting point. Again, I want to be really close, close to the bone here. And that is each of these modes of consciousness has its own unique domain. And the five sensory cannot, mental, that is auditory consciousness, cannot leap over and poach in the field of visual. Visual consciousness can't poach, pick up scent smell, and so forth. Uh, the visual cannot poach mental, cannot jump in and see, see your thoughts, your emotions, memories, and so forth. But there's one poacher. It's like, isn't it a cowbird? I think it's a cowbird that lays its, lays its eggs in other birds' nests. I think so. I used to study ornithology 50 years ago. Uh, but whether, you know, whether it's true, I think it is. Whatever it is, the, the one poacher here, the one that can poach in everybody's pond, is mental awareness. Mental consciousness. Because as I gaze, for example, at Michel, I turn my, my head towards her, I turn my visual gaze toward her, and I, and I see the visual impressions. In the scene, there's just the scene. The visual, visual perception picks up color, the colors, the shape, colors and shapes, basically. Colors and shapes, right? But I'm not just sitting here, oh, lots of colors and shapes. When I turn my mental awareness to anyone, a person, anything, then mental consciousness piggybacks it piggybacks on the visual, the auditory, olfactory, gustatory, and tactile. And so that when we're, for example, attending to the fluctuations of prana in the, within the body corresponding to the breath, we're attending to that with our tactile consciousness, but piggybacked on that, which is where the samadhi is, is in mental consciousness. You're developing samadhi with mental consciousness, not with tactile consciousness. Tactile consciousness is a carrier, but where the work is really being done is mental consciousness. This is crucial. It gets very interesting, very fast in my mind. So this, so so mental consciousness can stay home, 
as in very deep states of settling mind in this natural state, where your consciousness is so withdrawn from the five sensory domains that all that you're explicitly aware of and ascertaining are the events arising in the space of the mind, the space itself, and then thoughts and so forth and so on. Uh, and so it's staying home. It's just it's not poaching in any other domain. It's staying in its own domain. But of course, it happens all the time. Right? It happens all the time. As he gaze over at Felipe, then again, there goes, there goes my visual awareness. So it's, now it's focused there, and everybody else is out, out of focus. Right? Everybody is out of focus. Mental consciousness is now piggybacking right now on the visual and picking up uh, Felipe's facial expression. I can make sense of a facial expression. I understand a facial expression, not with visual perception. Visual perception, non-conceptual. Mental consciousness includes both conceptual and non-conceptual. And conceptually, I understand the meaning of a facial expression and so forth. Okay, let's keep it close to the bone. Back to feelings. So the, all of this is, this is theory. You can put it to the test. No, no doctrine here. It's either true or false. Check it. But now we come to feelings. Okay, so I just talked about consciousness, right? But now all modes of consciousness, and this is again core theme of Buddhist psychology and epistemology, that feeling is always present in any perception, in any experience. There is always feeling, as in pleasure, pain, and indifference. But bear in mind, crucial point, a lot of crucial points here. This is very, very compact. And that is we often, in English, and I don't know about so well about other European languages, I think it's probably the same, and that is, we're not feeling, uh, when we're not feeling happy or sad, uh, if we ask, well, how are you? Eh, nothing special. I'm not having any feelings. I don't feel happy or sad. I don't have any feelings. Yes, you do. The feeling is called neutral. So before the Indians came along, the Asian Indians, uh, there was no number for zero. Because zero wasn't a number. Zero was an absence of a number, right? And they thought maybe zero should be a number. <laughs> and so the Indians invented nothing. <laughs> They also invented samadhi and a few other things. But this turned out to be very useful. You, sh- show me the symbol in the Roman numerals, Roman numerals for zero. Can you imagine doing complex multiplication with normal Roman numerals? Oh, and these are Romans. Hey, sorry, but you know. You, I mean, X, X, Y, C, I, 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 C, X. I mean, really? You ran an empire with this? You've got to be kidding. Jeez, like, I mean, you know. And they, we call it the Arabic, you know, the Arab numerals. But no, they're Indian numerals. The Indians invented the Arabs. were smart enough to uh, learn from the Indians. Okay, so neutral feelings are also feelings. As much as bliss or agony, they are feelings. Neutral, which means no preference. It's right in the middle. It's neither a negative integer nor a positive integer. It's a zero integer. And that is an integer, zero. And so now... We're going to go back to mindfulness of breathing as a baseline. That's going to be our boat. That's going to be our boat. Okay? Mindfulness of breathing. So we're going to bring in this session, bring our awareness, that is the tactile awareness, is already picking up these sensations, or the, the appearances are rising to tactile awareness, but we're going to couple, we're going to piggyback mental consciousness, mental awareness, in with the tactile. So they're in the same telephone booth, you know, the tactile and the mental. We're going to be directing our attention once again to the tactile sensations as just something to hold on to for the 24 minutes. Something you can count on, like, like a life jacket or a little buoy. Okay, this one is always here. In-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath. As you're doing that, your baseline in shamatha, then what I'm inviting you to do for the next session, then I won't have to talk so much during the session, is this is just your baseline, just to keep your head above water. 
So you're just not, not drowning in laxity or swept away by the currents of excitation. Hold on to the buoy of the breath, in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath. But in the midst of this field, this somatic field, you will, you will detect, you'll directly observe sensations, of course, earth, water, fire, air. That's pr- maybe the Buddha says, oh, by the way, that's inclusive. Everything's going to be one of those or a combination. See whether that's true. We have all kinds of empirical hypotheses here that you can put to the test. But that's not the only thing you experience. We all know this perfectly well. That when you're experiencing your body, you're feeling your body, feeling the sensations of the body, you know that you're not just getting earth, water, fire, air. You're also getting pleasant and unpleasant. That feeling in my knee is really unpleasant. Oh, I'm experiencing surges of energy through the body. I like that. You know, bliss arising in the body. Happened, a number of you have reported. And discomfort, if you haven't reported, all of you I know have experienced it. Discomfort in the body, you know, it comes with the territory. And so... Now, as we start to finesse our experience of feelings, we'll know two crucial points. This is very high density now, right? So you might want to listen to this podcast twice. A lot, if you're familiar with it, no sweat. And that is, there are sensations like too hot, you know, hot, intense fire element. Well, you can be a cockroach, an earthworm, you can be a human being, you can be Einstein, but if it's too hot, we don't like it. And if it's too cold, we don't like that either relative to who we are, you know? If you're not a penguin, you know, the Antarctic gets a bit chilly. If you're a penguin, you say, hey, it's normal. <laughs> 40, be- 40 below, <laughs> an ordinary day. You know, that's fine if you're a penguin. But if you're any, you know, one of us naked apes, that's kind of uncomfortable. And so simple things like too, too much and too little, a fire element, well, we know, unpleasant. How about too much earth element? Let's call it getting hit in the head with a rock. Oh, earth element, intense, don't like it, you know. Or thrown out of an airplane with no parachute. Oh, lots of air element. <laughs> don't like it. Don't like it. Space element, too. As they say, falling isn't the problem, it's just the end that's the problem. <laughs> There's no real problem with the air or the space, it's just, it doesn't last. And then you get a whole bunch of earth element at the end. Yeah. But we have this that is tactily, it's that any mode of consciousness always has a feeling component to it, positive, neutral, neg- or neutral, or negative. And so as we are tactily or somatically experiencing sensations in the body, they will, by way of tactile perception, be experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is the hypothesis, all of this hypothesis. Then it gets interesting. It's simply something to memorize and, you know, then debate about and then move on to the next topic. Boring. So... So we experience unpleasant sensations, pleasant sensations in the body, neutral sensations in the body. This is true. Okay? Those are called physical feelings. Physical feelings. But of course we open our eyes. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow. No, we'll just no, today we're just going to focus on the body. That'll keep us busy. And so we have these somatic feelings. This is a pleasant sensation, unpleasant, neutral, right? But as I said before, we're coupling mental consciousness, it's piggybacking, it's fused with the tactile awareness. And so, we also have it, since mental consciousness always has feeling to it, as we're mentally aware of the sensations of the body, we also have a mental feeling of what we're experiencing. I'll give a good example of this. Uh, deep tissue massage. Let's imagine you come with a lot of tension and you pay a lot of money to have the best expert in deep tissue massage. 
give you, you know, a working a workover for one hour, and you're so tense and physically just tight as a tight, tight as a knot when you come in, and this person gets he or she, whoever, gets their fingers in, and they just start going deep into tissue. Tactically, that hurts. That's not pleasant. Mentally, oh, oh, I'll do it more, oh, deeper, deep, oh. You, know. you want it. You just pay for it. You're getting it, and you think, go deeper. I know it. it oh, yeah, but it feels good. It feels good. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Give them a big hug on the way after they've tortured you for an hour. <laughs> you give them a big hug. I feel so much better now. Oh man, you got you did just what I needed. Mental pleasure, physical misery, right? And then you can ask which one do you care about more? And that's an individual choice. <laughs> I had a Thai massage once, and a deep tissue Thai massage. He called it therapeutic. I called it agony. <laughs> Never again. Another crucial point coming. When we have feelings about anything, about a person, I have feelings for you. Or we look at art. Isn't that magnificent art? Isn't this countryside beautiful? Isn't that disgustingly ugly? Doesn't that smell? Isn't that smell awful? The sensation in my body feels awful. Oh, etc. This is how we talk. This place is beautiful. That person is, is very attractive. This food is delicious. That sound is marvelous. That music or whatever is marvelous. Um, you notice how all these adjectives, basically pleasant and unpleasant, good and bad, are all attributed to the object. The woman, the man, the art, the food, the smell, and so forth and so on. It is, it is, as if I've just described, uh, this, is, this is a Singaporean woman, this is an Italian man, that's an objective statement. It doesn't matter what I feel about it. I mean, that's just true. I don't have any choice, Right? I don't have any choice. Singaporean woman. What can I do? I can like it or not like it, but that's the way it is. And an Italian man, Italian, Australian, you can't, you can't figure out what he is. <laughs> Australian, Italian, doesn't know. So they're the Confusionists. Claudio Confusionist. And so, but that's just an objective fact. You know, there's nothing to be done about it. And then we very often treat this person is attractive as similarly like this person is a Singaporean. Is that true? The first point is not debatable. It doesn't matter what your perspective is. If you don't think that... Your name, your name once again? Kumilian. Lim. Lim. Oh, that's easier. Thank you. She abbreviated it for me. <laughs> Thank you. So Lim. If you think that a Lim is a Filipino, you're wrong, right? Not. It doesn't matter what your perspective is. Or you're an Arya Bodhisattva, or you're a Deva, or you're a cockroach. If you think that she's Filipino, she's not. You're wrong. That's the way it is. That's the brakes. Right. Is it, as we look at a cell phone, do you like Androids or iPhones better? One is better, one is worse. I, this one is much nicer. This is, what are we really talking about? And here's the Buddhist response, and that is all feelings are not in the object, they're in the mode of apprehension. All feelings. It's not an objectively given. It's in the mode of experience of the object. I did a little bit of checking. Just before I came here, I did some really, really fun background check on the, on the Internet to the most extraordinary fruit on the planet, durian. <laughs> I've lived in Thailand now for about two years altogether, and durian is something people actually eat. <laughs> 
But I checked out the smell on, on the internet, and here's how it was described. The smell of durian, which is sold for money, and people eat it, which is, and they eat, eat, people eat it intentionally, is, you ready? This is off the internet, so please don't blame me. As for its smell, it smells like pig shit, seasoned with turpentine and onions, and garnished with gym socks. <laughs> This is an objective fact. It, that, I thought that's about as good as a description of the smell of durian that I've ever seen. When I was in Thailand, somebody once, in a sealed bag, a sealed plastic bag, left a piece of durian just outside my metal door, which is about two inches thick, as a gift. When my wife and I lived in a barn up above in the Santa Cruz Mountains with Gatotemboche for two years, there was a feral cat, and the feral cat would go out hunting, and then, as a, a gift to us, would leave the liver and internal organs of its mice at our doorstep as a little courtesy. I prefer the liver of a mouse, because when I could smell it through the door, through the sealed plastic bag and through the door, somebody has brought durian within a half kilometer of my room. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> All right. That is what it smells like. And obviously, a long time ago, some people living in the tropics smelled it and thought, <laughs> I should put that in my mouth. <laughs> I think they're either suicidal it's got to be poison, and I can take no more of samsara. And I'm, gonna, I'm sure I'm going to die. Anything that smells like that has to be lethal. I think that's why the first people put durian in their mouths. They wanted to commit suicide, and they said, this will definitely kill me if it smells that bad. It cannot be anything but lethal. Probably one bite will do it. You know, like a lot of the snake venom in, in, Thai, in Thai snakes. So, but somebody tasted it. And it tastes pretty much like it smells. Why would it not? It's from the same source. And then somebody mentally thought, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I do have an (laughs) an interpretation. (laughs) Because I know people who think durian tastes good. And some of them I respect. And here's my interpretation. I know I could be wrong. I think they were vultures in their past life. Mmm, <laughs> durian. <laughs> oh, a dead rabbit. <laughs> so it is well said, correctly said, that when it comes to durian, either love it or hate, or hate it. And I assume some people really love the taste, because I've seen them eat it. And they smile. <laughs> so for them, the taste, the, the you know, the, the gustatory, apparently it must be good. And clearly they're smiling, so they're experiencing mental pleasure. Right? There are many, many other cases. Modern art. <laughs> Heavy metal. Uh, and the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, poetry, some literature, movies. 
movies that I would pay lots of money not to see, that other people clearly enjoy. Uh, and so all of this is to highlight, there's probably some truth to this, that if durian were, by its very nature, pleasant, if the taste of it were objective, then everybody would be right, and nobody would disagree. But people, do, does anybody, are there debates about the value of certain types of modern art? Are there debates among highly intelligent people about this is great literature, this is not, this is great poetry, this is a very attractive person, this is not, uh, and so on? And the answer is, of course. So, but where the debates come, and sometimes very, very you know, passionate debates, is confusing or mistaking or ignore, not noting the fact that the pleasure is in the way you're apprehending that piece of fruit, that art, that fragrance, the appearance of that person, that, th- that ideology, and so forth and so on. It's in the way you're experiencing it. So there's nothing to debate. It's like you're debating with, debating with me, Alan, no, you actually enjoy durian. Well, there's nothing to debate. I win. And if you enjoy it, and I try to persuade you that you're not enjoying it, you, I lose. There's just no, it, it, I lose me even before I even start. You know. If somebody says, I'm in intense pain, there's no debate. You may not be able to find the neurophysiological correlate. You may not be able to find any physical cause. But if they say, I'm in physical agony, what, where's the debate? It's their experience. You can't debate it. You're just not understanding it. So this point is a simple one, but it has profound implications. Because it quite clearly seems that just as our mental awareness is coupled with, but then infuses our various modes of sensory perception, and in so doing can easily override to the point of obliterating. So people who are so committed to the materialistic worldview that they are persuaded that anything that isn't physical doesn't exist, and any mode of measurement that is not physical doesn't exist, they can actually not see that they actually have the ability to introspect. Because they shouldn't, and therefore they don't. You know? And even, I mean, it's, I, I, I do find it impossible to imagine, but it has to be the case. People who say that quality don't exist, that consciousness doesn't exist, mind doesn't exist, it's, with their senses, it's perfectly obvious, but something's obliterating. It's like putting tar paper over their experience, and it's blotting out. So they're actually being serious and being honest, you know, and this happens a lot. It happens a great deal. Cognitive deficit disorders where mental consciousness, some idea, some fixed idea, belief, and so forth, is blotting out, just like a dark cloud, obliterating, smothering the appearance. So this suggests that we're not disempowered by objects unless we have a disempowered mind, and then the objects take over. And we feel we're in a world that's just happening to us. This was a miserable day. Those are awful people. That was a delightful place. This was horrifying. This was disgusting. This was delightful. This was so serene. As if it were as if we're just kind of like flypaper picking up what's out there, pleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. In other words, we've completely given away all of our power to the objective world. And we say, How are you? Up and down, up and down. I've heard that a few times already in the one-on-one meeting. How was the week? Up and down, up and down. Hello, flypaper. As if it happened to you. you know, I'm not ridiculing anybody, but we do this a lot. 
How did your meditation go? Well, it was this way. And I was just flypaper. I witnessed what happened. It was an awful day of meditation. As if you weren't even a participant. As if it happened to you. This was an awful day. I had a rotten encounter. As if it happened to you. As if the mind just has no power at all. It's just flypaper. It just picks up what's out there. This is where materialism leads us. And then the antidote is, of course, bring in the anesthetics, bring in the drugs, bring in the entertainment, bring in the work. Because that's where all the power is. And you, what do you know? You don't even know what you're feeling. Because you don't, you don't even have the ability to introspect. You see why passion arises? Maybe you'll see why passion arises about this one ridiculous ideology. When there are so many ridiculous ideologies to choose from. This one is really pernicious. So profoundly disempowering. So get back to constructive. We're going back to go back to the practice momentarily. And that is we're now going to go in and have the raft, the life buoy, the fluctuations, the regular fluctuations, something you can count on, something you can hold on to with continuity. But in the midst of that, broaden the scope of your awareness, attend to the whole field, and note not only the sensations correlated to earth, water, fire, and air, but also observe the feelings that are arising within the somatic field, because they certainly are arising. Examine closely for yourself. Run experiments. Get creative. Be a scientist of your own body. To see whether the feelings of discomfort, maybe it's bliss, maybe it's neutral feelings, that arise in the body, whether they're to be found in the sensations themselves, which are simply arising arising to you as appearances, as tactile appearances, very much like visual appearances and auditory appearances, are those feelings, the, ple- the, the pleasure, the displeasure, or the neutral, are they very, right there in the very nature of the feelings being pre- dished up to you, simply being presented to you, right? Or can you detect that they're actually not in the object, but they're in the way you're apprehending the object? And if it's in the way you're apprehending the object, you have at least the possibility of altering that. Because then it's not just done to you, it's actually coming from your side. And now we've just opened the door to this vast range of practices called lojong, mind training. It was alluded to yesterday, taking suffering as a path, illness as a path, death as a path, demons as a path, and so forth. Well, we can't take any of those as a path if they're just happening to us. It's just a done deal. You're sick, be miserable. You're dying, be miserable, and so forth. But if, it, if the pleasure or displeasure or neutrality is in the way we are experiencing, Illness, what other people call adversity, injury, death, loss, loss of physical stuff, loss of a loved one, and so forth. If it's not there in the object, if it is, then we're disempowered. It's just happening to us, like having rocks thrown at us. If you can dodge, dodge, but if you can't, too bad, you suffer. But if the suffering is actually in the mode in which we're experiencing, and if it's true, and there seems to be really strong evidence there is, I take in Durian as a case in point, that the mental can override the physical and thereby, mo- and that thereby modify the physical. The mental's powerful. We know that. Football players that get two big foot American football players, 40 per- 40% of whom have brain damage by the time they finish their, uh, their sport. Very sad. Criminal, actually. But you get these two big guys, 250 pounds each, running at each other at 50 miles an hour, having a 30-mile-an-hour head-on collision, and of course they put their head first. You know. uh, but if one of them gets over the, touch, over the touchdown line and scores a point, he's just had a 30-mile-an-hour collision 
with another great big guy with covered in you know heavy plastic and so forth. And then what does he do when he gets across the mound? Thank you, God. And mm, yay, and he spikes the ball, and he's hugged, and he's embraced because they just won the game. Filled with joy. Bliss, physical bliss, mental bliss. I did it. I, the scoring touchdown with three seconds on the clock. <sighs> I'm gonna, boy, I hope, that got, I, hope that got, got on, I got. I hope they got that on film. Of course they did. The mental totally overrides. No pain, no gain, right? That's what they say in football. No pain, no gain. And be happy with the pain. Okay, that's the good old macho ideal. That your mental totally overrides and modifies the physical. And then mentally, it's just pure bliss. If you win. If you don't, then of course, it sucks. So let's check this out. Jump in. Let's find a comfortable position, but don't expect to be comfortable too long. <laughs> With a wish that all beings may be free of suffering and to find the happiness that is their heart's desire. With the aspiration of bodhicitta, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Find your still point. Awareness resting in its natural state. Relaxed, still, and clear. Not yet being directed to any object, but simply resting in its own place. This is mental awareness. illuminating and knowing itself. Non-conceptually.
then direct the light of your awareness and the flow of mental consciousness to illuminate the entire space of the body as a constant. Maintain your flow of awareness of the ongoing flow of fluctuations throughout the field corresponding to the respiration. Quietly, non-conceptually, or non-discursively noting with each in and out breath, whether it is long or short, sustaining the flow of cognizance. As you bring this light of understanding, of discernment to the somatic field, this space and the sensations arising within it, now take a special interest in the occurrence of feelings. Does any part of your body feel unpleasant, even the, the unpleasantness of an itch? Is there any unpleasant feeling arising? Is there any pleasant feeling arising? And then, it's more subtle. But also take note of, identify, ascertain neutral feelings.
and in the feelings, now we speak of vedana, not just the sensations, but in the feelings of pleasure or displeasure, or even neutral feelings. In the feelings, let there be just the feelings. To the best of your ability, let your awareness remain still, without the cognitive diffusion, without the conceptual overlays, and most importantly, release the conceptual overlay of my feeling. I hurt. I am uncomfortable. I am feeling blissful. Release it. That's something constructed, projected, superimposed. And in the feeling of pleasure or displeasure, let there be just the feeling arising within the somatic field. Observe its nature. Is it permanent or impermanent? Momentarily arising and passing, or is it static? Examine closely now. This is Vipassana. There's an important question here, and that is, are the feelings right there in the very nature of the tactile sensations, which are arising as appearances, they're arising objectively, they're happening to you, are those feelings, in fact, simply happening to you, or is the Buddhist, Buddhist hypothesis correct, that they are rather your subjective mode of experiencing 
these appearances. See if you can run experiments. Here's one possibility. Empower your concentration, just for a short time. Very strongly, single-pointedly focus, like a laser or like a drill. Focus your samadhi right in upon regions of the body where you may feel discomfort. Leave your conceptual baggage behind. Go in nakedly, just observing what is arising, what is experienced. And as you bore into, penetrate into, the very nature of the sensations that feel uncomfortable, see what impact your samadhi has on the sensations themselves, are they getting more and more intense, which is what we would expect? But also the sense of discomfort, if that's intrinsically built into the sensations, then we would naturally expect that the more deeply, single-pointedly, intensely you probe into the feelings themselves, the more intensely the feeling would arise. On the other hand, if the feelings are not there in the object and you're focusing single-pointedly on the object, the feelings might remain unchanged or they might actually diminish. Run the experiment. You can do so if and only if you've developed your samadhi to some extent.
it should be manifestly obvious how important it is to develop your skills in shamatha before fully venturing into vipassana without the stillness and clarity of shamatha. The signal-to-noise ratio can be deafening. So with a silent mind, a clear mind, highly focused mind, turn to vipassana to make discoveries that are incisive, sophisticated, rigorous, and replicable. Vipassana is a little bit like deep sea diving, going down into the depths and exploring. But if you get a bit fatigued, you can always come back up to the surface, place your hand on the life raft, which is to say return to the surface and simply attend to the, the undulations, the rise and fall of the breath, by way of these sensations throughout the body. Rest up a bit. Relax. Stabilize. Restore clarity. When you're refreshed, continue breathing normally, naturally. But return with a question probing into the very nature of phenomena. In this case, the very nature of feelings.
The meetings will be five minutes delayed, and there's never any need to knock on the door. I'm there, I'll open this when I'm ready. <coughs>